on today's episode, Persistent Plantar Fasciitis Troubleshooting with Ian Griffiths. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Welcome to today's episode. Thank you for joining me on the Run Smarter podcast. Today we have Ian Griffiths and he is a podiatrist from the UK. He is a clinician and is also a researcher as you'll talk about in a second. Uh, he's also the podcast host of Podchat Live. He co-hosts that and it's one of my favorite podcasts. been listening to it for a very, very long time. It's um, kind of like the podiatrist version of Run Chat Live if you're interested in um, Matt Phillips and what he does with his podcast. It's very, very similar format. Um, like I said, Ian um, and Matt, they're both very charismatic, very chatty, and it's very evident in today's episode because we um, had a chat for such a long time. He now holds the record for the longest chat I've had with a, um, on this podcast, and I had to break it into two parts. It was unplanned at the time, but had to make the judgment call halfway through the interview and usually when I'm chatting to someone and let's say guest to 40, 45 minutes, I just pick within my list of questions what to um, ask next and kind of have it wrap up around the 60 minute mark. So I kind of pre-plan that or um, I guess modify the questions in a way that it wraps, wraps up in a nice time. But it was such an engaging conversation and Ian was so passionate and everything he spoke about, I just had to add a couple of different things and we just had a good chat around plantar fasciitis because something that I'm really interested in, I see a lot of my patients with it. I know a lot of people, a lot of listeners are very interested in this topic. And so we just continued and we went for such a long time. And so it's definitely going to have to be a two-parter. So maybe the cutoff at the end of today's episode is a bit abrupt, but um, like I said, we need to absorb this information um, and digest it in, in smaller chunks. So today we talk about uh, like what plantar fasciitis actually is. We talk about why it is such a persistent, troubling condition. Uh, what are some uh, what are some effective treatments? What are some mistakes that people make? And we delve into some of the research that uh, Ian was involved in regarding the most effective treatment. Uh, he was involved in a systematic review regarding plantar fasciitis treatment. And he also touched base on other treatments that aren't as effective in the literature, but can still be effective to relieve pain as well. So we cover a lot. Hope you enjoy this episode and we'll dive into part two next episode. Ian Griffiths, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. 
Well, it's an honor for me as well, because I've been following your stuff for a very long time, a very regular listener of um, Pot Chat Live. And yeah, I've been following your stuff very closely for a very long time. So it's a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate that plug, actually. I, I, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't ask for that, I promise. <laughs> well, we'll do, we'll do the plugs at the end as well. But <laughs> I love um, plugging podcasts. That I really believe in the ones I listen to regularly. So we'll do it more, more often throughout this interview. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right. So um, if people aren't familiar with you, can you maybe just um, give us a summary of who you are, what you do, and um, where you spend most of your time these days? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm, I'm, my name is Ian Griffiths. I am a uh, sports podiatrist um, and I'm based in the UK uh, in private practice um, in London two days a week. And I need to stop and think here because this is my my sort of a pandemic modified week which is still you know as you know we haven't quite got on top of the pandemic here in the UK as well as we as well as you guys have in Australia so I'm trying to think what we do now it used to be three days in clinic I'm two days in private practice in London um, I do uh, some lecturing at um, QMUL on the master's uh, degree there the sports uh, sports podiatry master's degree there and um, ultimately other than then you know dabbling with with social media and podcasts and nowhere near to, to the level you do, of course. Um, I um, oversee the, the the homeschooling and the school running of my two children as well. Fantastic. Brilliant. I love the, um, the combination of clinic and research kind of lecturer sort of thing at the same time. It's um, it keeps your clinic skills up to scratch and also keeps like, you know, up to date with the available research, which, is a really, really nice combination to have. And I'm excited to dive in today because plantar fasciitis is probably something you talk about a lot and you're um, very familiar with, but something that I've done a couple of episodes on the podcast before, but it's a condition that so many people have and it can become, as you know, very chronic, very persistent and just <clears throat> very irritable very easily. Um, my first question that I had written down um, sparks my curiosity because if I'm active on say Facebook groups and if I see people posting or if I'm talking to people who have large um, running Facebook groups, they always say it's plantar fasciitis posts that come up all the time and that get the most engagement. People just always comment, yes, this is me. This is me. What's helped you? Everyone's like constantly looking for the solution, constantly looking for ways to settle down their pain. Um, why do you think out of all the conditions that runners can have, why do you think plantar fasciitis is one that is so um, prevalent and one that can just stem into something that's so nasty and so chronic? Yeah, my experience is exactly the same as yours with, with regard to, you know, dipping into social media groups and, and seeing this being spoken about almost more than anything, you could argue. And, and clinically as well, you know, a bit like yourself, uh, almost all of our clientele are, are sports people and Large, large proportion of those are runners and it seems to be the chat we have more often than not um i think the the last literature i saw had it at um at, had plantar heel pain at, at being essentially eight percent of all running related injury wow um, which actually um doesn't sound as high as it probably should in my mind the amount I'm, I'm talking about it but then when you look slightly outside the running literature at a sort of I guess, society or community level, depending on the literature you read, it's, it could be anywhere, plantar heel pain, anywhere between four and 10% of, of any community can get it any moment in time. And I think when we consider the demographics or the sort of cluster of people that, that, that are more likely to suffer, certainly going all the way back to when I trained, I was always taught that 
it's the it's the condition of the the older or the middle age i say middle age because i'm i'm of this group age group now but the middle aged and sedentary person you know or possibly slightly overweight that was kind of the the classic plantar heel pain patient that we would talk but what we now know is um, as we've just been uh, alluding to, that the younger and the active are, are very much getting this as well. So when we think about it spanning the young and the middle age or the old and the, the thin and, and the, the underweight or the overweight, the you know, different body masses and the active and the sedentary, well, that kind of covers it. We've kind of just described every single person on the planet in some way, shape or form there. So it doesn't seem to mm. discriminate in the way it used to. And I think it's sometimes confusing when you think, how is something how does something get young runners who are who are very very active but also it gets sedentary less active sort of older people how can something do that and i think ultimately it's to my mind probably a very similar mechanism which as you know is this this fine balance between load and capacity so essentially how much we're how much demand we're placing on a tissue how much we're asking a tissue to cope with and how much that tissue is able to cope with so obviously the more active you are the more you're 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 putting load onto a tissue uh, the more sort of sedentary you are, you could argue that, you know, why am I getting heel pain when I walk to the shops? Well, because of the potentially the age related changes in the tissues, but also the deconditioning that occurs with being sedentary. You know, someone running, someone very, very young running 100 kilometers a week is, can overload their plantar fascia. But someone who's 55 and just walks to the shop for, for some milk every morning, that can be an overload. It's all relative. Um, and I think that probably speaks in my mind, at least my interpretation is that speaks to why this is so common across all populations mm. that we've talked about. And uh, with regard to its persistence, um, the way I would always describe this to people in a very simplistic term would be that sensitive tissues um, can either be kept sensitive by activity or they can be you know desensitized and one of the first things i don't need to tell you as a physio one of the first things we do with sensitive tissues is say okay what 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 initial things should we put in place to sort of try and lower sensitivity before we then gradually reintroduce you know or you know some kind of loading protocol and ultimately um when you've got a sore heel it's easy to keep it sore um it's not like a thumb where you think my thumb's pretty sore. I'll, I'll dial back on those 10,000 texts I'm sending. Um, or perhaps I'll switch hands and I'll, 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 I'll scroll Instagram with my other thumb today. You can't suddenly decide I'm going to hop just on my, my, my asymptomatic foot today. You know, you can, you, can act, you can modify your activity. And again, if you're willing to do so, we know we have challenges with people doing that as well. But even when you modify your activity, you can. it's very easy to keep a sore heel sore, which I think probably speaks to these these depressing and frustrating timelines that we see plantar heel pain exist upon. It's, it's a perfect answer. It's one that makes what well, makes me think about what I call this um, pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral, where the, the sensitivity of the tissues themselves can be spiral out of control where everyday sort of activities or just standing through your normal day-to-day -day stuff starts to interfere with that tissue sensitivity and now we're not just talking about running because people are totally backed off running altogether, but they have to work. They have to, they have duties throughout the day. They have to go shopping and that can start to, if you've passed this chasm where that activities of daily living are now stirring up that Achilles or stirring up that plantar fascia, it's very hard to control that. And then by the time you've sort of realized, okay, supportive shoes or trying to deload it as best you can, maybe with an orthotic, maybe with some taping, maybe with something, usually by that stage, 
everything irritates it. Like walking for half an hour irritates it. And when I was back in clinics, I was seeing a lot of people with plantar fascia. You could just get a sense of their career. Like you could get a sense of their injury path for the last six months where, you know, running 5Ks would stir it up and then running for 1K would stir it up and then walking for two hours would stir it up and then walking for half an hour would stir it up. And now standing still for 15 minutes stirs it up and <clears throat> there's this like steady decline of tissue tolerance and this steady increase of tissue sensitivity, which um, <clears throat> it's it's hard to say, but I think the the first couple of weeks that then trickles on to the first months of mismanagement is like a real... Um, sticky point really creates that downward spiral, which people are often really stuck in. They're often all the way down that spiral and they're trying to work their way back up, which is very, very tricky to do once they're in that state. Um, would you agree with that? Would you agree with kind of that timeline and um, those examples? Yes, I would. That's my experience completely. And, and I think it's why if we, if we do catch it early, we seem to the prognosis, the, the timelines, everything just seems to just be a bit easier for everyone involved. The, the, mm. the, 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 the fact, of course, is that we certainly within podiatry and the way we're set up in the UK, we rarely catch it early um, for a number of reasons. It may well be they've been, I don't know, we'll, we'll probably come on to talk about this, but they, they may well have been around the houses and seen a few people, seen their GP, tried a few things from, from the internet. Um, if we've seen, if we see someone and their opening gambit to me is, Oh, you know that they've had it in the you know, it developed in the last three months. That's that's we're lucky. You know, most of the time we're looking at six months plus, and mm. they've sort of uh, finally made their way around. And like you say, unfortunately, how far they are then down that spiral. I love that, by the way. I might steal that for clinic immediately. Um, but how far they are down that spiral definitely seems to feed into their um, how they feel about it and their mental state. And and we know how important those things are with, with regard to the pain experience, but also, you know, the options left available to us and the kind of timelines we're on and, and uh, all things sort of linked to prognosis. Yeah. Well then let me ask you this question. Why is it so hard for someone who has had plantar fasciitis for a couple of weeks or a couple of months to find effective treatments? if, If it's so prevalent and we've got a ton of evidence on, what some effective treatments are um why are we not finding why is it not the first thing that people seek and why are they mismanage it for weeks and months yeah it's a great question isn't it and um i guess that it, for, for me when i hear that that question it almost immediately in my mind separated into two things which is um why is it hard for them to actually find effective treatment as you said but but then this little voice in my head said what is effective treatment do do we know do we know and that might be a bigger question to answer um there was a lovely um qualitative bit of research um done not, not long ago um sort of like a thematic analysis um of I mean, a, a guy called matthew cotchett who's a podiatrist at latrobe uh, in melbourne and he's done some amazing work in, in around the realms of some of the non-mechanical factors considerations with regards to plantar heel pain and essentially it was it was i can't remember the i'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say i can't remember the title of the top of my head. it was something along the lines of um lived experiences of people with plantar heel pain so essentially took people and, and sort of just just really kind of got to the nuts and bolts of, of what they wanted from treatment and how they felt about treatment. And ultimately, the, the, the strong themes that emerged were that um, there were suggestions that when people had gone to their GPs, their GPs, there was the one, I think one comment verbatim was, my GP wasn't interested. 
And I do think you sometimes have to get lucky with the person you're sitting in front of or whether they're, whether they're into feet, so to speak, um, certainly when it comes to sort of GPs. And I think the second strong thing was that, and it might speak to the actual original question here, is that internet searches were referred to as being confusing, conflicting and unuseful. And I think we're fooling ourselves to think that the first time a runner develops discomfort they come up they book straight in to see one of us we know that they're straight you know they're on their phone as we all are you know the other day I had a plumbing problem probably should have called a plumber um ended up doing that ultimately anyway but why would I do that when I can take a 10 minutes on YouTube and watch some videos first you know this is just uh, the way we're now wired in 2021 and um you get onto the internet and like we say we've got this confusing conflicting borderline unuseful information coming from from all angles anecdote and we have lots of evidence as you say but there's there's an awful lot of anecdote out there as well mm. and um you, you layer on top of that the, the mentality of a runner which is are they willing to seek help how long have they ignored this for you know i know as a runner when something hurts i if I ignore it, perhaps it will go away and it won't interfere with that week's training. Um, but then the more I don't ignore it, the more it sort of makes itself known to me. And I, go, I get through those almost stages of um, denial before I decide, OK, I better see someone. And then I go on the Internet and I try a few things there. Now I'm confused because things haven't worked. And this is probably why people end up seeing us six months down the line, because, you know, this is the journey they've been on um, with regard to what's effective. Um, that's that's a that's the big question because I think the problem here is the one thing we of all the things we do know and, and some of the things we don't know the one thing I, I suspect most of us agree on is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all I mean this is true of any pathology isn't it any condition there isn't a one-size-fits-all there isn't a blanket approach um, and I think that's the problem when you when you see runners or hear runners speak to each other about I had I had this problem and I did x I did y I did z well, firstly, um, you know, we're, look, we're looking at different people that may not have had the exact same problem, which is another another point to mention. Um, but you're, you're really just hearing what worked for me um, sort of in, in quotations. And I think as soon as you try a few things and they don't work, that just feeds into that downward spiral of, OK, well, I'm stuck. I'm stuck with this forever. I mean, I see people in there in their late 20s, early 30s, real athletic specimens and one of their own, you know, when, uh, at the start of a consultation when um when you sort of ask them like tell me you know tell me your story tell me what you're worried about tell me what you want to achieve today tell me you know give me give me the backdrop and more often than not more often than, than i would like to hear i hear young healthy people say do i just have to live with this forever because their experience over the previous months has suggested to them that that may be the trajectory they're on so it's really messy out there it's an it's it's the wild west uh you know and you go onto social media and you know we in, in our in our clinical academic sort of silos we live in the gray so we we are comfortable being uncomfortable we're happy to acknowledge what the meta-analyses and systematic reviews tell us we're happy to hold our hands up with the limitations of such research we are happy to say we don't have the answers to everything but runners don't like that and why would they because they can go on instagram and some guy or girl with 120,000 followers can tell them in nice big, you know, um, nice big thumbnail and bold letters, cure your plantar fasciitis. And they're like, well, I, I prefer what this guy or girl is saying. Um, so this is kind of the whole messy business. Yeah. Every time you're talking, you're answering my question, I'm coming back with, I'm thinking of maybe like five or different ideas or five different questions to ask you because it's such <laughs> a fascinating topic. Uh, when you're talking about Facebook or like searching 
Google and searching Facebook groups and things, um, you're exactly right because you'll never see a post where someone says, I have plantar fasciitis, I've had it for 12 months, what's helped everyone else? You've, you will always come across conflicting stuff. It's like orthotics didn't work for me. Orthotics was magnificent. That's all I needed. Taping, strengthening, stretching, um, you know, shockwave, all these sort of things. And like you were saying, it's almost like what has helped you, the individual, is very different from what will help me as the individual. And I guess that's why the, you do get so many questions, so many different replies and why it's so hard for the individual to choose a treatment because some of it's not only just puzzling and confusing because there's so many different options, but some of it is very conflicting. It's it's contradictory to like, you know, sometimes stretching made things worse. Sometimes running actually made it better. Sometimes running made it worse and sometimes complete rest made it worse. And it's, it's very, very tricky, very uh, hard to navigate. But um, one idea that sort of struck to me while you were talking was when you're mentioning that a runner um, can sometimes ignore this for such a long period of time. And I often think when runners are injured, they don't, they don't seek help once it's painful running. They get to the point where it's so painful that they're unable to run. And then their motivation levels go through the roof because, you know, they love running. It's what they do. And as soon as that's why when they have these minor injuries that they just keep running and they just ignore it and they, they hope that it'll get better on its own. And once it gets so aggravated, so irritated, so sensitive that they're unable to run, that's when they're booking in the next day, um, just because motivation levels shoot the root through the roof. And plantar fasciitis or this plantar heel pain is something that can, for some people, really creep up on them. It can all of a sudden, the only you first notice it when you've had it for five weeks. It's one of those really thing that is really um very subtle, like, oh yeah, there's been a bit of stiffness with my first few steps in the morning, but it goes away and you forget about the rest of the day. And it's not until you be like, oh, I've had stiffness every morning for the first couple of minutes for the last two weeks. Maybe I should get it sorted out, but everything else throughout the day is fine. And then all of a sudden, when you finally decide to get treatment, it's been there for two months and it's, they just like, I don't know where the time went. I don't know why it's been there for so long. I usually am so proactive with these things, but it's just, it just crept up on me. Um, so that yeah, can you know, be a very clear experience. You're, you've hit the nail on the head hearing, hearing the word crept up on me. If, if someone comes in with a, I don't know, an, a, a, an ankle sprain and you say to them, tell me what happened, they'll pretty much say, well, it was April the 22nd. I was at my brother-in-law's wedding. I was on the dance floor. Except when, you, when someone presents with plantar heel pain, you say, tell me, what, tell me the story. They don't, they very, they're not, they're not going to give you a date. You know, you know, whereas an ankle sprain, they'll say it was Saturday. It was three Saturdays ago. Plant a heel pain. They say um, it was springtime. They'll give you like a three month window mm. for the exact reason you say it's so gradual and insidious. And I think your point about pain not stopping uh, runners, but but pain which stops running, you know, really being the motivator is, is key as well, because it is something you can usually run through for, for quite some time. Like you say, you wake up in the morning. You walk to the bathroom, you feel like um, you feel older than your years for the first four or five minutes. And then you kind of by the time you've pootled around, made some coffee and had some breakfast, you kind of think, oh, I'm good to go again. You run that day. You know, you um, you then wake up the next morning. It's, it's Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, you know, essentially. But you kind of go, well, you know what? But by, by midday, when I when I go for my lunchtime run, it feels OK. So it, it can't be that bad. And, and and like you say, it's only when it starts trickling into daily life or that pain in the morning starts hanging around for longer. Um, 
I think you're absolutely right. I think your comments are, are beautiful. And I think coming back to, you know, what works for some doesn't work for others. I mean, it's, it's what we refer to scientifically as subject specificity. I mean, it, it shouldn't surprise any of us. And, and it's, it's not unique to plantar heel pain or unique to stretching or foot orthoses or taping. It, it's, you know, if you took 10 people with a headache and gave them all the same dose of paracetamol, you'd probably get, sub you would get subject specific responses. Um, and this is one of the limitations of research when we say shockwave works or corticosteroid injections work. What we tend to find is the data has been mean pooled. So, you know, here's, here's 30 people that all had uh, plantar heel pain that, that affected, you know, function to this, to this degree. They all had, uh, here's, here's, here's that number represented as a mean of 30 people. We gave them all shockwave and, and you know, for, for three weeks, six weeks, and then at the end, Here's that mean. And once again, it's gone down. Well, you pull a couple of people out of that study. There'll be someone in that study that had no, no improvements in pain or function whatsoever, but they got lost in the, uh, in the mean pool pooling of the data. So um, I think, yeah, you go on the internet and, and just bear in mind you're reading what worked for someone else. And let's not forget, of course, the huge flaw that we all have as humans, which is making uh, spurious correlations and, and um, you know, sort of, uh, doing things and committing the post post hoc fallacy which is i did x and then something happened therefore x caused something to happen and i think sometimes when you see you see things on the internet you certainly don't want to illegitimize someone's very real outcome like if a runner is on the internet telling other runners that they rubbed um a mixture of toothpaste and horse urine onto their plantar heel pain and the next morning their plantar heel pain was gone. I'm not saying I don't believe them. I'm not saying that that, that that isn't an outcome that happened. I'm questioning the mechanism behind what's happened here and whether we are dealing with some incredibly strong contextual effect or placebo type scenario, or whether you know something else that was going on at the time was contributing, You know whether it just happened to regress to the mean that next morning. I mean. With some of these stories we see on the internet, we need to bear in mind what worked for someone else won't work for me. And also what they're saying helped might not be what actually helped because we, we are um, very, very easily misled with regard to timelines and, and correlation causation. Yeah, None of us are, none, you know, we're all guilty of that. And when it also comes to Facebook posts where someone said, oh, I just did stretching and it went just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know i have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge this is one email per day for five days learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury the sign up link is in the show notes so fill in your details and i'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow away you're not they're not posting all the other stuff that they might've done or incidentally done, like have time off or reduce their running mileage or change their footwear or um, they're, they're drawing these conclusions and thinking, yes, this helped me, but they're not really sharing everything that went on. And maybe it's a combination of all the things that went on that helped them as the individual. Uh, but then we're also tapping into the interesting topic of pain science. And if someone, their experience in like a clinic, if they're given an orthotic and they're showing all these, um, graphics of why it works and they're very the clinician is very um well educated in communication and will say this is why this is your pain and they get a lot of reassurance around it's okay to do certain things and the overall experience is very positive for the individual that's going to be a very real very positive experience and therefore whatever treatment the clinician chooses is more likely to work than 
if someone's just going out on a whim without really believing it to work and just give it a try and just see how it goes, that experience is going to be less effective because um, we know the brain is very powerful and I've had tons of episodes on pain science and most people will be very familiar with that similar effect or like the placebo effect and um, how, again, everyone's reaction, everyone's um effectiveness to certain treatments will be extremely different because not only just the the treatment that's effective for different people, but it's also the experience that they have around that treatment approach is very different as well. Yeah. And I'm already conscious that there may be runners. Um, I know your, your audience is primarily runners and there may be runners that are suffering with this. They've seen the, the, uh, the title on, on, uh, on, you know, the, um, your feed and they've suddenly gone, Oh, great. Like, I'm, I'm diving in here. Like finally someone's going to have the answers to how to, mm. I can, I can get rid of this problem. And now is the time for me to apologize that um, I'm not providing those. Um, but I would, I would also add to be, to be wary of anyone who too confidently does to the, for the reasons we've just said. Yeah. Uh, and some people can be very confident, like, because it's been magic for them. Like they can swear by, orthotics because it's helped them so miraculously and um so like you say we're not discrediting anything that they're posting or the the real benefits that they're having but we're just skeptical for it working for everyone else um so how about we will talk about treatments in a second we'll get we'll get to that um how about common mistakes that you see if someone does have morning stiffness um for the first you know 10 minutes in their morning it's happened for the last couple of weeks um, we don't want this to spiral out of control. We don't want this spiral into a really sensitive state where everything is now producing pain. Um, do you see any common mistakes that these people with early stages plantar fasciitis have that really inhibits them down the track? Uh, probably the things I see commonly done, um, and I wouldn't necessarily want to label them. Well, maybe they are mistakes, but it, feel, it feels... Um, I don't want to be I don't want to be rude and tell people they're making mistakes because you've got to do what feels right for you. But at the same time, the things that probably, you know, you know what we talk about when we talk about, OK, what are the big wins? Uh, there's lots of things we can do, but we should probably do the, the, the big wins first. And the analogy um, that I've stolen from someone else uh, shamelessly is, you know, if we've got a glass jar and we're going to fill it with stones and we've got big stone with big pebbles and tiny little stones. We, we, we don't want to fill it too much with little stones because otherwise we won't get the big pebbles in. So let's get all the big pebbles in first. And then what we can do is pour in all the little stones that will fill in the gaps around it. So if it's a case of what are the, the small stones that people are probably over-focusing on at the cost of ignoring some of the big stones, I hope I haven't milked that analogy too much, um, an over-reliance on passive interventions is probably the thing I would see the most. So people spend, and, and this isn't that these things cause harm, is that they cost time. Uh, time, like you say, that could be better done, or time, energy, or even you could argue money, that could be better directed elsewhere. So someone sort of over-relying on, on um, the foam roller, nothing against foam rollers, by the way, I have one in my house, I should I should add. I'm not, I don't want to get into that dogfight that um, about sort of, uh, soft tissue manual therapy that I know you physios love so much but mm -hmm. if you're spending an hour a day on the foam roller it's definitely an hour a day you could probably be spending somewhere else and other other passive interventions that come under that umbrella as well so I think what we tend to see is a huge over-reliance on on passive interventions um at the cost of probably and also I would say the other thing I see is assigning too much blame 
to one one specific thing usually the footwear the footwear gets 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 blame a lot it, get, it gets too much credit for stuff running shoes get way too much credit for some things and way too much blame for others probably uh, unfairly so i think if you if you assign blame to a pair of shoes they're the and we hear this story that those shoes gave me my plantar heel pain. They're the, they're the ones that I was wearing the day that I first noticed this. Again, we know that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but if you assign blame to something, the problem then is you perhaps falsely think, well, as long as I change those, I've addressed the cause. And, and we know that that may be um, erroneous. So, and at the cost of sort of blaming the footwear too much and spending too much time and energy on passive interventions, we definitely see a, a lack of reflection on someone's activity levels slash training habits, because as you and I know, we, we, you know, we can talk about some of the, um, the risk factors for developing plantar heel pain. And some of the literature might suggest that your foot posture is a factor and other literature might suggest that your ankle uh, flexibility or range of motion is a risk factor. But I don't know what your experience is Brody, but certainly for me, nine times out of 10, if not, if not 10, it's it's an error in load management and it comes back to that mechanism we talked about with the the young active or the or the the, the sort of older middle-aged sedentary you've at that moment in time you've exceed you've asked something of the tissue you've exceeded its top end its, its ceiling you've, you've exceeded its capacity and in a young runner whether you like it or not that's probably going to be a training error uh, and we all make them you know we all do things that you know, we shouldn't, we all bump up our frequency or our volume or our intensity or, or, or a combination of those things, particularly when we're training for events. And um, usually when we sort of, I, I love to sort of say to patients or athletes in clinic, tell me what you think caused the problem and see what answers they come back with. And then I ask them if they'll open their phone and show me their Strava. Um, and, and like I say, the answers are usually right there in front of them, but none of us want to admit that we perhaps overdid it a bit or that we, you know, we trained like, like a bit of a maniac. Um, we'd much rather blame the shoe and we'd much rather then switch that shoe in and out, phone roll the calves and we'll be back on track, ready for the long run on Sunday. So I think it's just probably just where priorities are, are um, sort of, sort of um, where, where someone sets their priorities and where they spend their time and energy. I don't know whether that's the, calling that a mistake is, is the right thing, but certainly that's, that's my experience. Um, I'm not sure if it mirrors what, 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 what you've seen yeah i think uh, what you've said like mirrors what i've seen exactly and it's worth unpacking that like in the initial phase or during any phase anyway it's you, you need to address the big things like you're saying you need to address the big things that would be the most effective for your management rather than focus all your energy on those little things like passive treatment so you mentioned foam rolling i'm assuming um well we'll delve into those a, a little bit in a second but Pointing blame was a big, um, big thing because it can be a hindrance to your recovery if you're blaming something that isn't really the cause, or maybe only just be part of the cause. Because um, you you need have you need to have the right education around the mechanism of injury to be clear moving forward. And I think like once they're well educated on what's actually happened and they're educated on tissue capacity and overloading tissue capacity and what to do afterwards to restore that tissue capacity the the management just starts to make a whole lot more sense and the the little pebbles the little um passive treatments start to make more sense in terms of its relevance and the big training errors like load management and building up the capacity becomes the most important thing which is like you say is like the the biggest factor when it comes to management but if someone's listening to this 
and reflecting back on what we said earlier and said, but even if it's overload and it's training errors, it's maybe doing too much too soon, but you were just talking about, it also affects the sedentary population. It affects like obese, inactive people. Why are they getting overloaded? Um, can you maybe just uh, allay a lot of people's confusion when it comes to like the two different populations getting the same condition? Yeah, so ultimately it makes sense to us when someone who runs 50, uh, 50 kilometers a week suddenly puts in an 80 kilometer week and and some, something usually a tendon because they don't you know because they don't like holidays and they don't like surprises um but it, it makes sense to us when you jump from 50k to to 80k something starts to feel sensitive and sore and maybe you reflect and you say okay I, I see what I did here. I overdid it. My, my graph on Strava is, is, is a bit, a bit too steep. You know, when we look from week to week volumes, completely understandable. Like you say that we say, well, hang on a minute. I'm, I'm 55 years old. I'm 60 years old. I took early retirement. I, I walk the dog every day. Um, and I've still got this problem. I haven't suddenly walked, you know, I haven't gone from walking the dog seven days a week to walking the dog 14 days a week, which would be, you know, you could argue a, a weird, way of looking at how they'd spike their load and I think what it comes down to is like we said we can either exceed our capacity by suddenly doing too much or we can exceed our capacity by doing what we've always done but our capacity has reduced um, so the analogy and once again I, I, none of these are mine I'm not smart enough to come up with my own I steal them from everywhere and I, I can't even uh, remember who I've stolen them from so apologies to whoever first came up with the, the water in the cup analogy but ultimately what we're saying here is you know if you're if your cup is, is your capacity for let's say your fascia and the water that you're pouring into a cup is how much you know load or demand you're placing on it basically you always have more cup than you have water as long as you don't overfill the cup you're going to be okay so if you've got um a cup and you suddenly you know you're, you're putting in water almost up to the brim every week and then you suddenly try and put in another 50 percent the next week you overfill it that's our runner that suddenly bumped their volume um where the cup analogy needs slight explaining is that human tissues are very um, clever and that the more you do to them, the more they change and the less you do to them, that, you know, the more they change in the opposite direction. Meaning if you were to slowly drip feed water into this cup in a slow and steady and sensible way, over time, the cup will grow in size, meaning at some point in the future, you can actually put 50% more water in but it hasn't been a sudden overfill of the cup because the cup has grown with you. And that's essentially what we refer to as training. You know, that's anyone who's been done marathon knows that that's exactly the process. What they're doing at week 14 of their training would have broken them at week two, but they have their tissues have moved along the journey with them and adapted. The converse is true. And I think this is what we're talking about with the sedentary, which is if you have a cup sitting there and you don't give it enough water, it starts to shrink. So if you've historically, you know, been filling up the cup, you know, um, to the brim but you have like you say if you're not if you are sedentary if the only thing you're doing is walking the dog every day if you're not doing any other kind of strength training conditioning cross training you know if you're generally just um enjoying retirement um then ultimately your, your your cup will shrink and walking the dog which shouldn't overload a cup the cup shrunk so much that now that 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 amount of water overspills so i think you're looking at the same mechanism but just at two ends of the spectrum you're either putting way too much water into your cup or you're putting water that the cup used to be able to contain but the cup has shrunk i.e your tissues have we're talking about deconditioning at this point a ton of sense and i think i'll steal that one as well um the <laughs> i think i can add to that analogy and say that if a runner 
is one of those fit and healthy people. They, their cup is quite large and they're filling in this water. If they overdo things and they fill that water too much in that sensitive state, while we've overloaded that, that cup itself becomes smaller in the short term while it, while those tissues are experiencing a very sensitized state and you can't, um, what previously the week before you were filling it with a certain amount of water. Now you have to fill it with less because uh, what was once tolerated is now can like stir it up and be quite sensitive. So in the short term, it's that cup itself is shrinking. We need to find how much water it can currently hold without overflowing and then slowly build our way back up. And if done well, or if identified early enough, that's a very short process. That's a process of about a week or two to get it back to its pre-state um, but if mismanaged, that cup continues to shrink because you keep overdoing it, overdoing it, overdoing it. And that sensitized state just makes that cup shrink more and more. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing you reminded me that on adding to that yet again is that sure. <laughs> let's just let's we're talking about, you know, stress, mechanical stress on the tissue, but let's not forget the other things that feed into this process, which is that, that may well affect the size of your cup that may shrink the cup, things like sleep deprivation, stress um anxiety basically every basically normal everyday life for a human being there isn't there's almost nothing that doesn't have the ability to influence th these scenarios as well so i think when runners sometimes sit in front of us looking at their strava going i don't understand there isn't a big spike i haven't overdone it um or like you say that the the the, the the retired dog walker says well i understand what you're saying but i do go to the gym three times a week and i, I play golf twice a week like there's nothing about that runner that suggests they they suddenly dumped too much water there's nothing about that retired um person suggesting that they their cup has shrunk what are the answers well if we're just looking at the mechanical loads we're not looking at the whole person the whole picture so that's when all of the other sort of factors of being human come into play as well so yeah pretty complex which is why yeah. we don't have wonderful solutions for these things and why i have like 140 odd episodes now dedicated to so many different topics revolving around this <laughs> and i like how Absolutely. um <laughs> i have like the concepts you talk about do um follow on with a couple of my previous interviews like i talked with izzy smith about overtraining versus under recovery and the combination between the two and how stress sleep nutrition hydration all those things just contribute to how much you can bounce back or how much um, attributes to um, under recovery in a way so it's it's a very similar concept and if those people who um, aren't familiar that can go back i think it's around 90 odd um, episode 90 something but let's move on because we've got some patron questions that uh, I would like to get through. So Janine asks, this is going to be a bit of a follow-on. Um, Janine asks, is rolling a lacrosse ball through the plantar fascia effective or rolling it through the calf Achilles? And I'll extend that question to um, methods like the Theragun, the, the ice, the freezing over that water bottle and rolling that and just all those other kind of passive treatments is there a place for treatment if so um how effective can it be yeah this, this is this sort of speaks to a couple of points we've we've already made but i'll go back over them and full disclosure i should say here I, as a runner myself around my house if you did a walkthrough now you would find various paraphernalia that we've just that you've just mentioned in various rooms foam rollers lacrosse balls theraguns normatech it, it's all here so that, that i just want to make sure that i'm um, <laughs> I'm being as honest and transparent as possible. Um, is it effective? So again, 
the first thing that, that comes to mind is we need to define what, what effective means. So does it, does it feel nice? As someone who does these things myself, the answer is usually yes. Um, do we have data to, to support the concept that it has profound effects or changes at a tissue level? I think the answer there is, is probably no. Um, but like we say, then we need to ask our questions, um, is, is it doing any harm? So is it doing any harm to the, to the tissues themselves? No. Is it, is it harmful? Is it influencing our beliefs in a negative way? Uh, and will that then be, hinder our, our long-term improvements progress? That's a very individual scenario as well. Um, and again, is it, is it taking the place of a big pebble? Because these things are absolutely fine mm. to do, but they are I, what I would call, call the smaller stones in the jar. So again, I would say to any runner, Janine or, or otherwise, and I, I, this is the way I approach it myself, if you're doing all the things that we would consider should be front and center of a management plan for plantar heel pain. If you're doing all those things, um, and we can talk about what those are, I'm sure at some point, um, then when you've got the kids to bed and you're sitting down and you popped on, you know, the football um, and you decide to kick back and, and watch a bit of TV, is there any harm in foam rolling your calf, lacrosse balling your calf? Um, I would always probably do that rather than just lie on the sofa for an hour and watch TV. I could lie on the floor and lacrosse ball my car for an hour. Like it's not robbing time or energy from the other bigger pebbles. So I would say just be mindful of, of probably what we don't, don't place too much value on it. Do it because you do it because you want to, not because you think you have to. That's probably the mm. way I would approach those kind of things. Yeah. I think it's also worth knowing that, like the the foam rolls, the the lacrosse balls, they would most likely just have a a short term pain management um, effectiveness, and so you would know it's working. You would know it's if it's working for you because your symptoms, like you'd feel better afterwards. And if it's for a couple of minutes or maybe half a day or maybe a whole day, like you would notice that difference. And so if someone were to ask you the question, should I do it? Well, you ask them, like, do you feel better after doing it? Because it's not causing any harm so if it's beneficial for you symptom wise then yes it should be um it should be a part of your management and so that could easily be answered by someone who has that question just try it out and if it if it um if it's beneficial then go for it but like you said a key thing to to note is making sure it's not replacing something that may be long-term um of benefit and something that is that the the big key to long-term management um if you're saying no harm have you found someone to use a little cross ball or maybe a theragun or something at that insertion site where it is particularly sore and irritated that way? It's interesting that you, you, that would make sense to me um, that, you know, if, if you've got something, you know, we think about where the plantar fascia sort of uh, originates from the medial calcaneal tubercle, which is that inside uh, sort of underside inside aspect of the heel, which most sufferers will know when, when they poke with their thumb, that's my, that's my sore spot. Um, You'd think pummeling away at that with a theragun might make it more sensitive thereafter. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, I see people that do this, do this sort of stuff all the time. And um, it doesn't seem in the majority of people to be the case. Um, and in fact, one, one gentleman uh, not too long ago who had been through a course of shockwave therapy as well said he basically uh, sort of a lot in his own mind, they felt pretty similar. Um, they, you know, he said, I've had shockwave. I, I now use a theragun at home. I basically treat it a bit. Like, I mean, obviously it's not shockwave. It's just uh, essentially percussion. But um, he said it, it kind of felt 
it felt kind of similar. So I figured rather than just keep paying for Shockwave, I'd spend a few hundred pounds on a Theragun and just do it myself at home. Not suggesting people do that, but you know, I, I certainly haven't seen a, a strong trend for people that decide to do that, making it worse. And I think whether you decide to do it or not really comes down to, you know, whether you're the kind of person that says something hurts, I'm going to get stuck in there and push into it or something hurts, I'm going to, I'm going to dial back from it. Um, and that's probably, there's probably individual psycho psychological profiles associated with those kind of behaviors. Certainly if I was very, very sore there, I know I'd be the sort of person that would leave it alone. Um, but mm -hmm. that's, that's not to say we have, uh, we have uh, data to support one over other. Yeah. And we've kind of been dancing around this for a long time around the most effective things that should be in everyone's or in most people's management plan. Um, load management, obviously being one of them, like finding that concept of the cup and the water and making sure that we don't overfill and making sure that we build up the size of your cup. Um, what should be the most effective treatment um, for a runner, not necessarily the sedentary population, but what should be in most people's, if not all of someone's, uh, everyone's management plan when it comes to overcoming plantar fasciitis? It's the big one, isn't it? We, there was a paper that, I, um, that was published and I was a, a very small part of the team. Um, we published it in the British Journal of Sports Medicine um, just uh, a few months back. It's open access, um, so anyone can grab it and read it, whether they're a clinician or whether they're a runner. And it, it was essentially, it took us five years. It was a five-year project. When I signed on to it, I was told it was a one-year project, um, but it just spiraled, spiraled and spiraled and spiraled because of, because of the, the size of this topic. And, and it's essentially what we're referring to as a best practice guide for treating and managing plantar heel pain. So it's directed at clinicians, so doctors, physios, podiatrists, and basically saying, here we are in 2021. This is this. We're not saying everyone that comes in with this problem follow this this algorithm because we we've already, as we've already said, that's that's not the way these things work. But it's a guide, and it, it essentially had a three pronged approach. The first was the the systematic review meta analysis, where we basically collated all of the work that previously been done on modalities for treating plantar heel pain, brought them all together. And for those that don't know what a systematic review meta-analysis is, you basically take all the work in one area, bring it together. People that are far cleverer than me run some you know, you know, statistics on it. And then we try and work out what does the, the, the totality of the science currently tell us about the things that work well, the things that work not so well, the things that don't work at all. So that was the first sort of stage of it. That the, you know, What does the evidence tell us works for plantar heel pain? The second part of this uh, was we essentially interviewed um, world, world experts from all across the world, clinicians who essentially are experts in the field of plantar heel pain. So they treat an awful lot of it. They've, pub they've done research in it. They've published it. And basically, essentially within, within the interview scenario said to them, what, what's your experience of what works? What do you see work? What works best in your head? So we've got what the evidence tells us, but we've got what people are actually doing. And the third part, which which is what I believe made this paper so unique, was we did that same kind of interview, but with the athletes and the patients, the patient voice, as we're referring to it. And when you think about the, the paper I mentioned earlier in, in, the, in the podcast about the sort of thematic analysis of runners feeling like, you know, medical professionals weren't interested and in that, you know, essentially their, their, their expectations were, being, were not being met it makes complete sense that you say, well, if we're going to study this thing, rather than just churn out another paper that says 
this is what we think worked. Let's ask the patients what what has worked for you, what doesn't work for you, what 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 did you have success with, what where were your expectations met, where were they unmet, and then what we tried to do was synthesize these three areas: the evidence and what it says, the specialists and what they say, the actual sufferers and what they say, and we brought it all together, um, and essentially tried to provide as best we could a bit of a guide on where we're currently at with this now the 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 results were kind of interesting and i'm certainly not sitting here saying anyone with plantar heel pain should therefore try what i'm about to say but this was what emerged from all of that um information when it got when it got sort of bunched together um plantar fascia stretching actually came out reasonably favorably and it was suggested that as as a first line and the great thing i think about this is we're not saying it will work for everyone but what we know is it's something everyone can do you don't need to spend money you don't need to go and see something. you can be a runner who says okay where do i go with this you can you can do something very cheaply very easily at home and see if it works plantar fascia stretching came out as being quite favorable for something that should probably be tried as as a first line alongside taping um, and also individualized education. They were probably the three things that, that initially we would say, you know what, if, if someone's suffering with plantar heel pain, and again, we wrote this more for the clinician than we did the runner, but I think the runners can take something from this. You know, let's, let's, let's have a think about what we're doing here. Let's make sure this person understands what, what's going on. Um, because as we've already said, the more you understand what's going on, the more that will feed into whether you make good decisions or not so individualized education about the problem plantar fascia stretching and taping so they're probably the things i would say if you are listening and you're suffering from plantar heel pain and you think to yourself actually i've never been taped up and it's not something you could necessarily do yourself although youtube videos are available but you know you could ask your physio to do it or your podiatrist to do it if you think i've never tried stretching if you think to yourself i'm sitting here and you know truly ask yourself do you understand what's going on do you has it, you know, are you fully, if, if, if the, the, the test we do is the Kieran O'Sullivan test at the end of a consultation, when we've explained to someone what was going on to test their understanding before they leave, we would often say, so just before you go, I want to ask you when you get home and your, your other half um, asks you, what did that person say? Tell me in your own words, how you're going to describe your understanding of what's going on to your other half over dinner tonight. And that's a really, I think, a really nice way of understanding. If, if as a runner with plantar heel pain, you think to yourself, could I explain this to my partner? And, and if, you, if the answer is you can't, it probably means, you know, that you need more education. And that's fine. You know, speak to the medical professional and, and they'll get, get you on board. But I would say stretching, taping, education, and the sort of second line after that, the things that then get to the point where you're probably um, needing these to be delivered by a medical uh, healthcare professional, are shockwave therapy and custom foot orthoses. Um, they were they were the, the next big two. Um, now I'll be honest and I'll say um, custom foot orthoses uh, surprised me. They came out favourably over prefabricated devices. So it didn't surprise me that people did well with orthoses. I've given them, given them to people on and off for twenty years, um, but. It surprised me that the off-the-shelf ones weren't as effective because a lot of our research prior to this had suggested, you know, you don't necessarily to get, need to get something custom made. Now, again, the limitations of, of pooling all this data may, may answer some of those things. But the one thing that, that we really noticed was interesting 
And the one thing as a physio that I wonder whether you've already sort of flagged, where is it, where is it, is some kind of loading protocol or strength work. Yeah. Um, and let me, let me say from the off, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing those things. And when we come back to our load capacity water cup analogy, what we know is that, you know, we're reducing our water by modifying our activity, but how do we get that cup bigger? We've already said it, we, we, we train, you know, we condition our tissues. So I'm not saying it should be omitted. I'm not saying um, it isn't useful. What I'm saying is at this moment in time, and it will change, I'm certain that the, the data to support it doesn't appear to be there. Um, there was only one study at the time that we did, did this that, that had really looked at it, which you'll be familiar with, which is the Michael Rathliff study, the, the sort of high load um, plantar fascia loading. Um, and it didn't meet the level of quality it needed to for inclusion in the meta-analysis. So again, a meta-analysis can only really be as good as the studies that are in it. Um, and there just weren't in, there weren't any studies that had looked at strength with regard to plantar heel pain that were of high enough quality. That doesn't say don't do it, but I just wanted to um, make sure you're aware of why that hadn't been mentioned there. Um, but again, these would be what we would we would call the big pebbles. And if you're doing all of these things, um, along with, like we say, and underneath the umbrella of education, individualized education comes um, load management, as you've said, you know, so ultimately load management, understanding. And then if you look at all the other things, stretching, taping, shockwave orthoses, they come under that umbrella of, we're trying to either trying to sort of modify loads on tissues in the short term and allow them in the medium to long term to, uh, you, become more tolerant of what will be what will be asked of them in future yeah that, that's awesome i'd love to have a look at that paper as well and have a read through it because it's super super interesting stuff i love how you've they've taken the approach of asking the patients as well uh, as well as the clinicians because i'm just thinking a scenario in my head of someone coming in to a consult with plantar fasciitis and the clinician being like oh so is there any improvement they say oh you know maybe yeah, I'd say so. And they're like, oh, great. You know, like how much is it like 50% or like, you know, 60%? They're like, oh, maybe, I don't know, 10%. And they're like, yes, it's working. Let's continue doing this. And like the patient walks out being like, I'm not really feeling that much better. And the clinicians um, sitting back in their chair being like, yes, what we're doing is working. Like those sort of like how you interpret what's going on, it can be totally different. You know, they're patient's expectations is nowhere near met, but the clinician's like, oh, we're on the right track. We're doing the right thing. It's been effective. Um, so it's good that you get the story from both both sides because it can be totally different if you um, just interview them individually. And um, I, do, I did have a deep dive doing the plantar fasciitis um, episodes I did early in the podcast. I looked up the um, relevant or well, the, the current literature that was available. And so to surprisingly to me, like the stretching was almost, um, as if not more effective than this, uh, strengthening in like, I think it was like six to 12 weeks, like within that kind of short to medium term. But then I think the strength down the tracks range superior, like, you know, three months, six months down the track. Um, but I was surprised at how effective stretching could be. And when you're talking about stretching for someone who isn't that familiar, what would be some um, actual stretches? Like what would, what does the stretch look like that's been found effective? Well, are we stretching calves, Achilles, how does it look? Yeah. So it was the, it was the stretch of the actual plantar fascia that, that came out favorable, which again, um, I'm exactly like you surprised me because you, you know, you go into these things as a scientist, hopefully, you know, with an open mind and unbiased, but the reality is you're still a human that has your own practices and beliefs. And you sort of think, 
well, we all stopped stretching the plantar fascia years ago. And there's debate about whether you can even stretch it, right? Because fascia connective tissue isn't the same as, as different tissues. And um, when it comes out, you kind of go, okay, well, it surprises me, but the science is the science. I, I can't ignore it just because it doesn't fit my narrative or my bias. Um, so it was a plantar fascia stretch, which again, will usually look a bit like the best way to describe it. If, if I'm hopefully I'm doing a good enough job is if you, if you knelt down, um on, on the floor but you sort of um put your toes in you know you, you didn't kneel with your the, the top of your foot flat with the floor you sort of put your toe or your foot into like almost like the position it would get in when you're in a plank or a press up so you're kind of dorsiflexing or you know your big toe up and sort of leaning back slightly again um conscious that probably description hasn't worked well on a podcast but if you just um if you google uh, plantar fascia stretch the other way you could do it is just cross your leg over and just grab your big toe and pull it up into the air you'll just feel that tension through the sole of the foot um but i think as part of that you probably you know most people are probably reasonably familiar with stretching the calf um discussions within the literature about the calf complex and and the achilles tendon and the and the plantar fascia actually you know in some cadaver studies shown that they're almost one continuous tissue, so to speak. So I think it makes sense that if you're going to stretch, uh, spend some time stretching your plantar fascia, throw the calf, uh, throw the gastric, you know, the, the soleus, throw all, throw all of those kind of things into the mix. Although I did just see a paper that was published um, literally about two months ago, which, which questioned whether ankle range, it, it took people with, with and without plantar heel pain and looked at their ankle ranges. And the assumption would probably be, again, people with plantar heel pain might be a bit stiffer or might have limited range at the ankle. There were no difference between the two. So for every time you sort of feel you've got this stuff um, you know, aligned well in your mind, a paper comes along to sort of um, poo-poo it, which is kind of, I guess that's just the nature of what we do, isn't it? But um, yeah, stretching wise, I was hugely surprised. Um, in clinic, what does clinic look like? Do we give more stretching than strengthening? Absolutely not. No, historically it's very much been uh, the other way around. So um, I suspect like all research, if, if similar study is done five years down the line, things look different. I know that there's work being done. Uh, Henrik Real is doing a lot of work on uh, strength work in the, con in the context of plantar heel pain. So uh, those studies are ongoing. So these things are always changing, always evolving. Um, ultimately, I don't know many runners that wouldn't benefit from doing some strength work if for no other reason the links it has with performance if that's what you're into so if you're sort of thinking to yourself as a runner well i do my strength work because it improves my efficiency my performance and then you know if it if it sort of increases tissue capacity and, and sort of helps as part of rehab of other things then that's that's just serendipitous isn't it yeah i think uh, i'm i'm still thinking about this whole stretching thing and thinking of that, like it's helped me in the past. I think when we're talking about the brain and how effective some treatments can be, and like we say, the whole experience around what a treatment effectiveness is, like you say, with the plantar fascia, we're not really doing a whole lot at stretching it, but we're noticing, we're paying attention to it. It's like an, a, an effective treatment that everyone can do. And you kind of feel like, oh yes, you get this kind of stretch where it produces a little bit of pain, but you know, it, it can be good for you. And so doing that kind of makes people feel good. And we know that stretching in general makes people feel good, even though it's not really doing a lot, like maybe the ITB stretch. We know that doesn't do anything to change the length of the, of the ITB, but people swear by it because it's so, um, because of the, the sensation it gives people and the feedback it gives people. And there can be a couple of 
injuries, say like proximal hamstring tendon, where we don't really suggest stretching because that can irritate the tendon, like this insertional um, tendinopathy that maybe one that we shy against, but stretching, I know I've had patellofemoral pain in the past, it flares up every now and then. And I know that it's not malalignment of my kneecap. I know that it's not, you know, tight structures, weight structures, controlling the position of my kneecap. I know it's just overload, but I stretch my quad and it does wonders for my patellofemoral pain. It does. It just works like magic. And so, um, yeah, it's an interesting topic. It's interesting, like how, what we know about anatomy and what we know about physiology sometimes doesn't directly correlate with patient experience and outcomes. And so it's good that you've highlighted the importance of stretching and how it can be very beneficial because it can be something that's very easy for someone to do and can have a lot of benefit. And so very good, very good point. I like that. I think when we think about what stretching is, we're essentially applying a load to the tissue, very low level load, of course. Um, and certainly when we talk about one of the hallmark features of plantar heel pain, um, which is that first step pain on, on rising in the morning, you know, we often, there's been lots of theories about why, why that, why do we get that? Why does, you know, it's the, the classical sort of sign that raises our index of suspicion that the plantar fascia is, is involved here. But when we've been sitting for a few hours and we get up that first 10, 15 steps are the most sore. When we've been lying in bed for seven hours and we get up, the first four or five minutes are sore. Lots of debate about why. I'm not sure we've ever really uh, nailed, nailed the answer on that one, but certainly one theory I recall was that, you know, when you're lying in bed for seven hours and this plantar fascia is essentially having no load applied to it at all, it's essentially, and, and given the position, sleeping positions most of us adopt, you could argue with a slight plantar flexed ankle, there's even a shortening of the plantar fascia. Um, you then suddenly go from seven hours of non-weight bearing to weight bearing. And we know as we weight bear, we, we're going to be applying a tensile load. So a load through the fascia that is trying to elongate it. Think of it like a, like a stretch in, 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 in loose terms. And that's provocative for the first few steps. But as anyone who's had this condition knows, this is, this is part of the process. The more I walk, actually, you know, this is going to, as they would refer to open quotations, warm up, close quotations. Mm-hmm. We, might, we might refer to it as motion is lotion or another fancy kind of phrase of, of, of someone smarter. But ultimately, there may be something in the mechanism there by which, you know, tissues like to be loaded. And the more you load them, uh, generally, even if it's like you say, in some scenarios, it would be very sensitive, very irritable and to be avoided at that moment in time. But there aren't that many human tissues where the avoidance of load is ever going to be a long, a long, a medium to long-term consideration. So if you think of stretching as just applying small controlled dosages of load, um, then you might be somewhere to explaining why people say it feels good. Um, but again, I'm, I'm theorizing. Yeah. And also in the research, I think night splints can be quite effective as well, which is along the same similar lines of um, stretching. Absolutely. They just apply that prolonged you know tensile load or elongated force to the tissues i don't know if you've ever worn one brody i put one on one no. I've, huh. never, I've never had a touch wood i've never had um a reason medical reason to wear one but i always like to, to try and if i'm going to ask anyone to do something i like to have some personal experience of it which is why i that's how i justify my wide range of running shoes so because I, I, <laughs> apparently i need to know what they feel like to talk to them about other people but i put a night split on one night just to try um 
again, I, I'm I'm not um, I wasn't pathological at the time. I wasn't I didn't have a condition, so that you know it's a, it's not a great uh, study here. It's an anecdote, but it was the most uncomfortable night's sleep I've ever had in my life. It there really was, <laughs> and it just, just just testament to how all it was doing was was holding my ankle at ninety degrees, which is a position I'm in when I stand up on a flat surface. It's a position I should be able to tolerate, but actually, throughout the night my ankle doesn't rest at 90 degrees and i would i would wager most of most of the people listening it doesn't either i mean when you get into bed this evening get comfy and then have a split second to think about what position your foot's in. i guarantee your ankle's probably plantar flexed because you're either on your side in the fetal position slightly pointing your toes down if you're lying on your back the weight of the duvet will push it down if you're a front sleeper again the, the top the dorsum of your foot will be on the you know you're going to be in a plantar flex position so putting yourself to 90 degrees which is a completely daily position that you're in for seven hours was wildly uncomfortable to me. And um, if nothing else, as uh, you know, the looks my wife gave me when I put this thing on and got into bed suggests to me, if, if nothing else, it might be great for uh, plantar heel pain, but it's not going to do anything for your love life. Uh, it's mm. it's going to be a, pa- it's going to be a passion killer for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's good to. I think we'll wrap up there. I think that's a um, a perfect way to to finish. And next episode, like we said at the start, it's going to be delved into part two. We're going to answer more of your patron questions around um, dealing with multiple diagnoses at the same time, like plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendinopathy, etc. We're also going to dive into asking your questions around uh, other diagnoses. So perhaps you've been diagnosed with plantar fasciitis, but it's actually something else. So looking at some hallmark symptoms and getting uh, just ways to understand a better accurate diagnosis. We also talk about maybe chronic symptoms. If you have something, if you have plantar fasciitis for two to three years, really inflamed, what are some things you'll do? So we delve into the chronic side, the pain science side of things. And we're also going to delve into Ian's take on plantar fasciitis regarding foot posture and pronation, overpronation, those structural influences and see how much of a link there is or how much of a correlation there is with plantar fasciitis. So hope you enjoyed part one and I look forward to bringing you part two next time. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.